0: Welcome to the Business Buzz. I'm your host, Harold Littlejohn, CPA. I'm looking forward to today's show. It's really going to be a lot of good information for you. What we're going to do today is we're going to go from, we're going to start with local. We're going to talk about state. We'll talk about some national, probably talk about some international. This is a show all about business. Uh, Local business has all kinds of interesting things, of course. But uh, I also like to talk about the big picture. I also like to warn people that their investments are not always uh, as safe as they may think they are. That's something I always kind of harp on with all of my clients. I, I just don't like to see people without insurance and or protection uh, basically being too exposed to the crazy things that can happen with investments and your money. So I like to make sure that people that I help get of good protection and insurance items at least I present them to them so that if the market crashes right around the time they retire and they can't keep working to fill up their account a whole lot more uh, at least I, at least I can say I told you so even though it that's still never fun to do but so so starting out today uh, there's a there's an interesting uh, article And this just comes from the uh, Enterprise Records business uh, area. So you may have seen this, so I don't want to bore you too much if you've already read this. But I wasn't aware when I read this article. I'm glad I read it. Did you know that since United has pulled their airline traffic, uh, their route from Chico to San Francisco that ended at the end of 2014, there have been quite a few businesses In Chico that have basically said, we're moving because we don't have air service for the business we need to do. It's very important for a place like Chico here to have that access to commercial airlines. I remember when I first came to Chico and I was living in Whitney Hall the first year, There was still Hughes Air West that flew to the Chico Airport in seven, I believe they were 737s. Back then could have been 727s because this was the late 70s. And it was really nice because you could have a relative uh, go to the airport in Oakland or San Francisco, and within about a half hour of their flight leaving there, probably 20 minutes, they'd be in Chico. And uh, that was very convenient. I know it came in handy quite a few times for... For me and my family, here's the interesting thing about that. In 1980, with the Reagan administration, I believe it was Reagan. I don't think it was Carter, but it might have been the end of Carter's term. I, I really don't want to quote this because I can't remember. I believe it was 1980. What happened was the deregulation of the airlines. Now, what does that mean, the deregulation of the airlines? Well, one of the things that it meant, because I don't know what it meant overall, one of the things it meant was that in the old days when airlines were more regulated, if, they, if an airline, for instance, let's just use Hughes Air West as the example because they're the ones that used to fly jets to Chico, and I did always wonder, hmm, when I've flown from Oakland to Chico or San Francisco to Chico, there wasn't too many people on that flight. Uh, I wonder how they make a living doing this. Well, here's the way it used to work before deregulation. If Hughes Air West wanted the route of San Francisco to Los Angeles, which I'm sure they did because that's the kind of bread and butter uh, airplane route that uh, flights are going to make a lot of money for those companies on those routes. In the old days of prior to deregulation, it was, okay, fine. You guys can fly 12 flights a day from San Francisco to Los Angeles. But if you want to do that, you also have to fly one every day or two from San Francisco to Chico, and you might not make a lot of money. But it was okay because they got their 12 flights a day from San Francisco to Los Angeles. So, what happened was when this deregulation came in, airlines like Hughes Air West dropped the flights that weren't profitable, like San Francisco to Chico. So, we ended up with an airport without jet service. And that's the way it was for quite a while. But when these commuter planes came in, the one that's owned by United, it's in this article somewhere. I can't remember the name of it, um, but uh, I'll find it here in the middle of this article. They dropped it in 2014 because they weren't making a profit. Well, you know, that's been almost three years now since the end of 2014. Uh, There's actually one company... uh, Milestone Technologies, this is from the article in the uh, Chico uh, ER. Uh, Laura Erseney is the business writer that's been writing for quite a while, and I've read a lot of her articles over the years. Milestone Technologies, which was forced to relocate a Facebook-linked call center and 100 jobs to the Bay Area last month, flatly stated that the lack of air service was the reason for the move. So what they've done is they've organized this group called Jet Chico, and Jet Chico is working to, with these business owners who started this Jet Chico thing, and they formed it in 2016 to put Chico in front of air carriers going where regional travelers want to go. So there's a whole group in Chico working toward recruiting a new airline to cover the Chico to the Bay Area. Now, it sounds to me like if a company – that was here and had to relocate 100 jobs to the Bay Area flatly stated that it was the lack of air service. That, to me, sounds like any new businesses that are looking for a place to relocate, thinking of Chico being a great location for a a company that could relocate, that is probably, just based on this Jet Chico thing in this article, that's probably going to be a reason why they would pick a place other than Chico they might pick something like uh, somewhere near North Sacramento uh, Woodland somewhere like that because it's so close to an airport and when you think about it if you look at a map uh, Chico is really now f- going to be far away from any air service uh, Redding I'm sure they still have uh, air air traffic from San Francisco to Redding but this would really be a hurt so anyway uh, what else can the city do, asked Councilor Mark Sorensen. That's another thing on here. So it seems to me uh, somebody really probably needs to get on this because I could see where Chico would be getting passed up by companies who are looking to move out of the Bay Area. I also read another article. I didn't bring that one. There are people living in their cars that work for Facebook and companies like that. Because the rents and the house prices are so high in the Bay Area now that even guys that make 80 or ninety thousand a year can't afford to live near where they work the trend is going to continue to be remote work uh, internet is such a big part of work now these companies can relocate outside of the exact area of Menlo Park Palo Alto San Francisco but it looks like if we don't have an air Service with a an airline getting up here, some of these companies may be saying no. So that was my my warning, I guess, for the local business that if we want Chico to get some new jobs, some new uh, job making companies, uh, that's probably an important thing that we need to think about. Now moving upwards from the local area, we're going to spread our wings out a little bit and uh, talk about uh, the the state the state area and. One of the articles here that I've looked at is another one that I believe I found through the Enterprise Record. Let me double-check where that one's coming from. And this one is called... Oh, before I get on to the state level, uh, there's a town hall meeting Monday night with our illustrious representative in Washington, Doug LaMalfa. It's uh, 8 a.m. Monday, August 7th at Manzanita Place. Uh, a lot of people know that as the Elks Lodge, but Manzanita Place is, their, is the Elks uh, public meeting rooms, uh, places where you can rent a room, have a wedding, uh, have a meeting, all that kind of thing. So if anybody's interested in a town hall meeting with Doug LaMalfa, uh, that's 8 a.m. August 7th at Manzanita Place. I, As far as the local congressman here, I... To be honest, I don't follow Doug LaMalfa that much. I know he's a rice farming family, so I'm sure he's helping the agriculture around here, I would think. I do remember the, one of the biggest flip-flops of, of all time, and that was our former illustrious representative, Wally Herger, who seemed to have a lifetime tenure at being the representative of this area to Washington. And I'll never forget how right up till the day before the famous NAFTA vote, which was, I believe, 1983, it was a huge deal. It was all over the news. Uh, They preempted all the TV shows that evening for the NAFTA vote from Congress. It was really a big deal. And the amazing thing about our local representative, Wally Herger, was that after saying he was going to vote against NAFTA, every day for the previous year, he voted for it. Uh, Nothing I can say further than that. That's one of the times where I lost my faith. And not that I ever really put faith in any particular party. Uh, I have a confession to make while we're on the subject of local representatives, and I hope they're listening. I doubt if they are, but I hope they are. I... I dropped out of the voting system about 20 years ago. Okay, all right. Everybody who says, well, then you can't complain because you don't vote. I've got to tell you, I feel so good ever since I've done this because I have seen during my entire life the decline of popular sentiment getting legislated. And I personally chose to not participate in a system that I felt doesn't work. Now, I know, you know, whatever, uh, I'm, and I'm happy to debate that. Uh, anybody can uh, let me know what they think. But I choose not to be part of a system that I feel is not working. And one of the reasons is things like uh, the NAFTA vote. I mean, I used to actually call my congressman, call my call. I was call Feinstein's office. Uh, I'd write to Boxer, all of those things, and uh, you know what? I just don't believe the system works. I, I sort of believe it's broken, and uh, I don't. I just don't want to participate in it. So I honestly uh, wouldn't visit the Lamalfa town hall meeting myself because, uh, as a non-voter. I just don't want to be involved that directly, like I say, I've got my opinions, uh, i I do everything I can locally to um, help people, but I got to confess, I don't participate in a broken system. Now, the other uh, sort of sort of the local thing here that uh, struck my fancy was that uh, we have. A, an article in the ER and I mentioned the other day that the Enterprise Record has a direct link on their front page of their website to a place called California, which is cannabis related and I, I, don't, I don't know why but anyway there's, there's an article and I'm not really going to get into the details of the article it's, it's a dated Dateline Los Angeles uh, and it's called Inside a de- cash dash, inside a nerve-rattling trip to pay marijuana taxes. So, basically, uh, my my main problem with this article is this is not, uh, it's not legal on the federal basis to even sell recreational or medicinal marijuana. So, this article is talking about um, The the problem people are having with the whole marijuana business and I'm just sort of uh, I'm sort of interested in what are they going to do to reconcile the fact that it's quote legal on the state level but it's still illegal on the federal level. Personally uh, I do have some clients who uh, we're going to get back to this as soon as we get back from the break. I'm Harold Littlejohn. I'll be right back with you on the subject of legal and illegal businesses. Stay tuned.
1: Astronaut Bob the Drop here. There's been a lot of talk about water found on Mars. Why would you go all the way to Mars for water when we have the best tasting water at Mount Shasta? It comes from our protected springs and is delivered right to your door. Great landing, Bob. Hey, where are you going with that? Those Martians are stealing my water. Guess we have some new customers. And anyone can get Mount Shasta spring water if they call us at 1-800-922-6227. Pure and simple. Naturally,
0: the best Mount Shasta spring water.
1: Hall Marketing and Design in Chico would like to remind us that thousands of children who were safe at home a year ago are missing today. Parents, it is important to keep recent photographs, fingerprints, and dental records of your child. If you have any information that may lead to the location of a missing child, report it. This message from Hall Marketing and Design in Chico. Visit them online at hallmarketingdesign.com or call 895-9484. That's 895-9484. They're on the air because they care about our children. What is your role in the fight against cancer? The answer could be as simple as driving your car. For many cancer patients, getting to and from treatment is one of their toughest challenges. The American Cancer Society needs volunteer drivers to help provide transportation for people in your community. Through the gift of a lift in your car, you can help patients take one more step in the road to recovery. Get in the driver's seat in the fight against cancer. To find out more, call your American Cancer Society at 1-800-227-2345 or visit cancer.org.
0: back to Business Buzz. Well, the gist of that article was mainly talking about the fact that this business of the marijuana dispensaries, this one's in Los Angeles, they deal in cash. And the guy runs $4 million of sales, but he has to deal with counting cash every day, protecting it, uh, worrying about crime, uh, and then paying the taxes somehow because the state has made it legal. So it's sort of a you know, catch-22 He's got a business that's making a lot. It sounds like it's making a lot of money, but he has to deal with everything in cash. He can't run it through credit cards like everybody else's business does these days. So that's, uh, that's, a, that's a little bit scary. I'm, uh, I'm not sure that's a great idea. But uh, anyway, I personally have some clients who are peripherally involved with a service businesses that help uh, the medical marijuana industry uh one's like a trimmer of plants one helps uh irrigate the fields for some plants uh, but personally i do not help anybody who's actually in the marijuana business itself uh, owning and growing just because uh, i don't know what might happen i wouldn't want to be i wouldn't want to be the tax man of record if some federal fbi sweep comes in and takes everything away of theirs and then they they look to see their numbers, and they see that I'm the one who did their taxes. I'm not really, uh, I'm not really big on that idea. So I just politely refer them to uh, call someone else if it's an actual marijuana-owning company because I know there's a lot of money to be made. To be honest, uh, I don't agree with it, but if it was legal federally, I'd probably be happy to help them with some tax issues, but uh, I'm just not really in the mood with an illegal business. It doesn't, just doesn't sit well with me. Now, one of my favorite topics, this is sort of a statewide topic. A lot of my clients are members of CalPERS, CalSTRS. They have pensions through the state of California. So one of my favorite topics, if you've been listening to me, you will have heard this topic before, and I'm bringing it up again. It is... The title of this article from my favorite financial news website called zerohedge.com. I recommend everybody read that every day. It it keeps you ahead of the game. There's been many times where I've read an article there, and then the next day everybody else is talking about it, but I knew about it a day in advance. And the title of this article is What Ponzi Scheme? Public pensions average 0.6% return in 2016 despite 7.6% assumption. Now, to review... Pension plans are based on they bring in money from the current people working. They pay out money to the retired people no longer working. And this system, it's sort of related to the way Social Security works. That system works if there's not a cash flow problem. In order to make sure these large pensions don't have a cash flow problem they need to make a certain rate of return on their investment assets that they've invested in. That rate of return, unfortunately needs to be 7.6%. That's the general assumption of pension plans in order to stay solvent and to make all these future payments to all the retirees. Well, there's a bit of a problem here in 2016 well, actually, as I'm going to show you in a few minutes, there's been a problem in a lot of years. In 2016, now this is a public pension analysis from the Center for Retirement Research at Boston College. Now, I'm not saying they picked the exact right things to sample here, but it says here, as part of their study, Boston College reviewed 170 public pension plans in the U.S. Now, that's quite a few and found that their average 2016 return was an abysmal 0.6%, compared to an average assumed return of 7.6. Now here's another feature talking about more than just 2016. Meanwhile, per the chart below, the average return for the past 15 years has also been well below discount rate assumptions at just 5.95%. So here we have 15 years of returns less than the amount needed to keep these pension plans solvent. That doesn't sound too good. Uh, in the year of 2009, if everybody, anybody remembers 2009, that's the year after the 2008 financial crisis, they call it, where our Federal Reserve was kind enough to ship $12 trillion around the world to shore up some banks, uh, and then it took them about, three or four years to even tell Congress who got that money. Uh, So 2009, these pensions actually lost 17% of their value of their investments. And then since then, it's been up, it's been down, but the average has been uh, 5 point something percent. So my, my point of the story is cash flows have been negative for the last few years also from these, uh, from these pensions, and the way this article puts it, it says, but perhaps the most telling sign, of, and they call it in here, of the massive Ponzi scheme being perpetrated on American retirees is the following chart, which shows that net cash flows have become increasingly negative as a percentage of assets as annual cash benefit payments continue to exceed cash contributions. And uh, like I say, if you go to that site called Zero Hedge, you can look at this article, but the the chart is is definitely showing uh, negative cash flow out of these pensions for the last uh, six years. So this does not bode well. It's not a good thing. Now, that's pensions. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the stock market today. Here's the interesting thing. The Dow 30, it's only 30 companies. It's called industrial, but if you look at a list of the companies in the Dow 30, it's, v- it's not that industrial anymore. I think 100 years ago, it would be very industrial. It would be U.S. Steel, General Motors, all those kind of things. Um, in fact, while I'm talking, I will try to look up the, uh, the components of the Dow right now. But anyway, so here's what's happening. The Dow 30 is the general index that everybody hears a report on on every radio station. It says, and at the the end of the news, they say, and the Dow's up 10 today, or the Dow's down 20, or the Dow's up 80 today. Uh, The other big news today and yesterday is that the Dow has exceeded 22,000. So if you turn on any kind of news like CNBC, all you will hear about is the fact that the Dow is 22,000 and everybody should be rejoicing uh, that uh, that is happening. The problem is not all Americans share in the wealth of the Dow going up. Some do, some don't. Okay, I'm going to read off a list of these Dow, uh, Dow 30 uh, components just so you know. Okay, uh, DuPont, all right, that's industrial. ExxonMobil, that's industrial. General Electric, I'd say that's pretty industrial. Goldman Sachs, it's a bank. It's not industrial. Uh, let, me, let me get this thing open to the whole thing. Sorry, I'm, I'm not being able to open the whole thing. Uh, so anyway, uh, I believe like McDonald's is in there. I'm going to try to look this up right now. Okay, here we go. Uh, let's look at what they call the industrial. Apple. Well, they actually do make physical things, so eh, maybe industrial. American Express, they're basically like a bank and a charge card company and a travel service. I say not industrial. Boeing, okay, that's industrial. Caterpillar, that's industrial. Oh, by the way, Caterpillar just ended a string of about something like 40-something quarters of declining worldwide sales. So anybody who thinks there's a worldwide economic recovery going on, uh, ask people who own Caterpillar stock. Uh, I do believe they had one quarter that turned around recently. Okay, so, so far, I'm just going to keep track. I'm giving a yes to Apple being, uh, I'm going to say Apple is industrial, but I really don't think it is, but I'm going to give it credit. So, so far, we're uh, three for four. Cisco Systems, eh, that's not industrial. We're three out of five chevron that's industrial we're four out of six coca-cola i'm not going industrial with that we're four out of seven and i'll be right back to continue my analysis of the famous dow 30 that they love to quote to you i'll be right back
1: astronaut bob the drop here there's been a lot of talk about water found on mars Why would you go all the way to Mars for water, when we have the best tasting water at Mount Shasta? It comes from our protected springs and is delivered right to your door. Great landing, Bob. Hey, where are you going with that? Those Martians are stealing my water! Guess we have some new customers! And anyone can get Mount Shasta spring water if they call us at 1-800-922-6227. Pure and simple,
0: naturally the best, Mount Shasta spring water.
1: The Bible is different. This is Ken Ham, an Aussie transplant with a passion for sharing the truth of God's Word. When looking at our reading about ancient artifacts and documents from Bible times, watch for both similarities and differences. You might recognise names, places, or even events from the Bible. Some of the myths, like flood or creation myths, may sound even familiar because the true account of what happened is recorded in the Bible. But note the differences. The Bible doesn't portray events as if they're myths. It uses historical narrative. Unlike other ancient sources, the Bible presents one true God, the Creator. In the Bible, God is the source of power. In other documents, The gods are controlled by magic. The Bible is distinctly different because its author is God. Sign up for daily insights from Ken Ham delivered to your inbox when you go to AnswersRadio.com. Listen to this program again or view a full transcript at AnswersRadio.com. People are always looking to invest in a good opportunity. So what if you could invest in the future of kids like a stock? Not the kind of stock that's about making money, but a stock for social change called Better Futures.
0: With your investment, it helps students like me go to college. My name is Charles, and I'm your dividend. Invest in Better Futures with UNCF. Visit uncf.org slash invest. A mind is a terrible thing to waste, but a wonderful thing to invest in. Brought to you by UNCF and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Business Buzz. This is Harold Littlejohn, CPA, your host. What I was trying to get across here is that today the Dow was up, but the broad market, the main market is down. And so when you hear on the news, oh, the Dow was up 50 today, the Dow's at 22,000, your money's safe, Uh, don't, uh, you know, move along, everything's fine, just buy more stocks, What I have done here is I just made a list of the companies included in the Dow, quote, industrials that I contend are not industrials. And guess what? Out of 30 stocks, my little list here, and I'm going to run through it just to let you, uh, I'd like to know what you think. 19 out of 30 are questionable. A lot of these are not industrial Uh, probably a bunch of them are questionably maybe industrial. So I'm going to tell you what these 19 of 30 of the Dow is and why I think it's a scam. Okay, American Express, give me a break. They're like a bank. Cisco, they make uh, components. They make, uh, uh, I'm sorry, networking equipment. They're famous for that. Goldman Sachs, they're an investment bank. Uh, IBM, this is a questionable one. They mainly make a lot of software But they do, at least they used to actually make physical computers. I doubt if they even do anymore. I'm calling them questionable for industrial. Intel, they make chips. I'm not calling that industrial. Johnson & Johnson, they make soap and cleaners. I'm not calling them industrial. Get ready for this one. J.P. Morgan, it's a bank, for goodness sake. That is not industrial. McDonald's, they make hamburgers. Not industrial. Merck. They make prescription drugs that get people hooked on things they probably don't even need. Not industrial. Morgan Stanley? Surely I got that wrong. Let me check my list. Oh, I'm sorry. My mistake. Microsoft. Not industrial. They mainly make software and programs. Nike? They make tennis shoes. All right. Theoretically, they have a factory. But it's not in the U.S., so uh, I'll, I'll say that's a half. Pfizer, it's another drug company, not industrial. Procter & Gamble, it's another Johnson & Johnson. They make Dove soap or Dove ice cream. I don't know. It's not industrial. Uh, here comes another one. Traveler's Insurance? Give me a break. That is not industrial. Now, uh, United Health not industrial. It's like a health insurance company. Visa? They, they're like a bank. They take 2% of everything you spend with your credit card. Not industrial. Verizon? It's a telephone service. Well, I mean, theoretically, they've got a lot of equipment. They got towers everywhere, but it's all wireless. I'll give them a half. And for the last two, I'm trying not to laugh Walmart? Industrial? They're a retailer. And the very last one, I have to laugh. (laughs) Ha ha. Walt Disney. That is not industrial. So here's my point. The main part of the market on a day like today is down, but the Dow 30 somehow ends up being up. So 90% of people who aren't paying close attention to these things hear on the news that the Dow is over 22,000 and it was up today. That's all they hear. That's all they want to hear. That's all they're going to get to hear. So what I'm saying is there's a broad market that's a lot different than that and you cannot rely on this Dow 30 at all. It is not industrial. It's not a good measure of the real economy and it's very skewed to international income. Let's take a look at some of these these companies that I just talked about. Uh, Caterpillar, one of the industrial ones. Boeing, one of the industrial ones. A very large amount of their revenue is going to be foreign sales. They probably don't pay any U.S. tax on those sales. Uh, Apple, tons of foreign sales. Uh, Cisco Systems also. Uh, Chevron, I'm not sure, but I'm sure they do a lot of uh, international business. Coca-Cola give me a break. That's totally foreign sales. I mean, there's a lot here, but there's a huge amount of foreign sales. So you look at all these companies and I can guarantee you that these are very heavily weighted towards foreign business and uh, not U S based industrial. So anyway, that's my little tirade for the day. Well, I may go on one or two more. I'll apologize in advance if I do, but, uh, the Dow industrials is a joke. So when you hear that it's up over $22,000, do not get too excited. Uh, I, would, I would mainly say hold on to your wallet. Um, okay. Now, related to this whole thing about the stock market, I wanted to point out a thing called the Hindenburg Omen. Hindenburg as in boom. Omen as in Damien. So what the Hindenburg Omen is... Uh, and this is from uh, the Wikipedia. I was just trying to find a quick definition that I could share on the air. Uh, this is from Wikipedia. A proposed technical analysis pattern promoted by this guy named Jim Miecka. Uh And what it is is that when you see this happen, it quite often preludes a stock market crash. And what it is is it's a cri- it, it measures the number of new highs and new lows being very high numbers. So what it is, is there's a famous indicator of all these stocks. uh, And if if something's at a 52-week high or a 52-week low, that's significant. That means it's the highest price it's been in a year or the lowest price it's been in a year. If there's a lot of new highs and new lows and the index of the stock market, which is the broad stock market, is greater than it was 50 trading days ago, uh, that means that the market is up But there's a large amount of new highs and new lows. And uh, to be honest, uh, I would probably take a technical analyst, uh, eight hours a day type of expert to explain exactly why this happens. But what it does mean is that right now we're on a point where this Hindenburg omen is very high right now. I believe believe it's as high as it's ever been outside of like the year 1999 before the giant dot-com crash. So... Uh, Just keep in mind that the the Dow Industrials are not really industrial. It's a fake measurement of of the market in general. And uh, it's the one that they put out every day to make people feel like everything's okay when it may or may not be. Now, spreading out a little bit to a little further, uh, as far as business goes, you know, one of the main businesses, it attaches to so many different businesses. It even attaches to my business is the home building business and the real estate business. Uh, Real estate allows builders to make money, it allows banks to make money, it allows brokers to make money, uh, it allows realtors to make money, and it allows homeowners to make money when the price of their homes go up. But one of the interesting articles that I uh, was interested, interested in sharing with you today is a sort of a scary one and it is titled Toronto Housing Market Implodes. And what it is is that Canada, Canada has had a huge housing bubble run-up, sort of like we had in 06 and 07, but I think even worse. And it's been huge. And uh, what it is is that uh, briefly the... Uh, the prices of Toronto real estate just plummeted over the last month. So that's a little bit of a scary news because house prices tend to, like I say, in 06 and 07, when house prices were high here, you had all these people uh, taking out home mortgages, improving, uh, adding on to their house, using the money that was from this equity in their home. And uh, if you see uh, markets that have had giant run-ups all of a sudden have giant turndowns, that could be a sign that the top of the real estate market market is approaching. Uh, It's possible that that's approaching. Uh, Not saying that it necessarily has to be, but uh, when you see a a market that ran way up start to turn around, that uh, that can be a little bit scary. Now, my next topic is uh, we had a... New piece of legislation. I don't think it's been passed yet. It's a national legislation. This would affect uh, the gun gun industry. That's another industry that's sort of been on the ropes for a while. Uh, Gun control is sort of a a big topic. Uh, A lot of states have tried to limit uh, gun sales. A lot of gun uh, manufacturers have, uh, you know, suffered business losses due to the fact that their product has been, like, basically made illegal almost, by these gun control laws. So uh, I wanted to point out this article, again, from Zero Hedge. Like I say, this, you'll see the articles here before you'll read them anywhere else. A lot of times you'll never see them anywhere else, but you will see them here. It's, it's, it's titled, This New Piece of Legislation Could Demolish State Gun Control Laws Across the Country. And um, a new piece of legislation that could significantly roll back the worst of these laws on the state level... In particular, the laws that were put in place under the Obama administration. And it's called the Second Amendment Guarantee Act, which was recently proposed by New York Congressman Chris Collins, could prove to be the most significant attack on gun control laws we've seen in generations. Yeah, I bet you haven't heard about this one on uh, CNN lately. According to a press release issued by Collins' office, uh, the legislation would protect the Second Amendment rights of New Yorkers that were unjustly taken away by Andrew Cuomo, who was uh, New York's governor. Um, it would provide an intimidating bulwark against gun control advocates. In a nutshell, it would prevent these States from passing restrictive laws that exceed the scope of federal gun laws. So state or local governments would not be able to regulate, prohibit, or require registrations and licensing licensing that are any more restrictive under federal law for the sale than under federal law. For the sale, manufacturing, importation, possession, or marketing of a rifle or shotgun. Additionally, rifle or shotgun includes any part of the weapon, including any detachable magazine or ammunition feeding device and any type of pistol grip or stock design. Under this legislation, any current or future laws enacted by a state or political subdivision that exceeds federal laws for rifles and shotguns would be void. So, anyway, We'll get back to some more uh, national news in a couple minutes and join us back for the break. This is Harold Littlejohn. I'm your CPA on the air today on Business Buzz. See you after this message.
1: Hi, this is James McDonald, Bible teacher on Walk in the Word. You know, every day we receive emails and letters from listeners just like you, men and women who've been impacted by Christian radio. I got to ask you, have you taken the time to call your radio station lately? Whatever you're doing right now, just stop and pick up the phone. Your station needs to hear from you and know that you're standing with them. I can guarantee that your words of encouragement and financial support will strengthen this station long after your call's been made. That newborn baby is going to need a lot of special nourishment in order to grow up healthy and strong. The same is true for those who are new in their walk with Jesus. The Bible says they need spiritual milk to nourish their souls at a critical point in their life. That's what we try to provide with the teaching and talk on our station. And when you send them your financial support, you're helping to accomplish something powerful. You're helping us get spiritual nourishment to those who vitally need it. So thanks for looking out for those newborns of all ages. Tell your friends about Life Radio, KKXX, AM and FM.
0: Welcome back to Business Buzz. Well, I'm having a lot of fun today with all these interesting articles and topics. Next week, we've got some real good local business guests lined up. Uh, we're going to do some interviewing, and I know you're going to find that very interesting. Today, I, I brought along uh, one of my favorite books. It's been a while since I've actually uh, read through this. Uh, I've had it for a long time. I read so many e-books these days that paper books... Aren't my forte anymore, but I did have this one handy. The other thing is, you can go to like Google and search the title of an old book, and I have found this, and it is online, but it's not like where you can page it over like an ebook and real easy to read. It's more like a giant PDF of kind of like the microfish I was talking about last time, or uh, sort of like a. Uh, Photocopy of all the pages one by one through the book, so it's sort of hard to read those books like that online when you look at them up through Google. But they are there. But um, the one I'm going to read a little bit for you from from today for you that's fascinating. It's really one of the best uh, history business books I've ever read. It's called History of the Great American Fortunes, and the author is named. Gustavus Myers, M-Y-E-R-S, and according to the liner here, it was originally copywritten in, oh guess what, I I knew it was old, I didn't know it was this old, 1907, and it's, uh, I'll tell you, this book is awesome, if you, if you can look it up on Google, and if it's there, I I haven't looked to see if this one's there, because I found my uh, paper copy here, I looked up another one that I'm going to share with you on another day. It's called The History of the Supreme Court. And me having been a a, a law school student, uh, I have my law degree. I teach at the law school. I'm always interested in things about the Supreme Court. And uh, History of the Supreme Court, is it should be required reading for every law student, but of course it isn't. But anyway, this book is called History of the Great American Fortunes. And uh, Chapter 5 I'm just going to read a little bit of this because what I'm thinking here is that, okay, we're talking business. All the people that I help, uh, you know, they want to increase their business. They want to make more money. They want to do better. They want to, uh, you know, do better for their family, for themselves, uh, leave something for their for their children. How do you go about really making it big in the United States? Well, uh, there are people who make it big here uh, very morally, and I won't I won't say there aren't a lot of those but there's a lot of them that made it in a, eh, a little less a little less of a perfect fashion, shall we say. So the first chapter of this, uh, Astor book, I, uh, it's been a while since I read it, but, uh, it, uh, he had a lot, you know, one of the interesting things about Astor is there's a place in Oregon called Astoria and he was a giant fur trader, the original Astor. And, uh, Oh, the, this chapter about the start of the Astor fortune, talking about the abuse of the Native Americans, is pretty. It's pretty depressing. But this one's called the momentum of the Astor fortune, and so we sort of skip up to the panic. There was a panic of 1837, where the uh, uh, the U.S. economy had a big financial crisis in 36 and 37. So I'm just going to read you a little bit out of the uh, chapter five, the momentum of the Astor fortune. This is how they made money back in the good old days. Remember also back then there was no income tax. So if you could make millions of dollars back then, you would not pay income tax on it. And do you realize what a million dollars in the 1800s would be worth now? If you look at a menu of like a steak dinner, even in uh, 1890, a steak dinner's like 10 or 20 cents. We're talking 30 or 40 to... Uh, I'm sorry, we're talking probably 100 to 150 to 1 right now as a dollar in the mid 1800s versus the purchasing power of like a steak dinner that's now 30 bucks. So keep that in mind when we, when we listen to this. Um, talking about this Panic of 1837, it was at this identical time in the Panic of 1837 that Astor was phenomenally active in profiting from despair. Quote, he added immensely to his riches, wrote a contemporaneous narrator, by purchases of state stocks, bonds, and mortgages in the financial crisis of 1836 to 37. He was a willing purchaser of mortgages from needy holders at less than their face. And when they became due, he foreclosed on them and purchased the mortgage property at the ruinous prices which ranged at that time. If his 7% was not paid at the exact time, oh, and uh, a little aside, I was saying the other day that the average interest rate is 5 to 6% over time in history. Uh, right here, we're talking 7% back in the 1830s. Um, that's where I was saying uh, our national debt could never be repaid if the interest rate was 5 to 7%. If his 7% was not paid at the exact time, he inflexibly made use of every provision of the law and foreclosed mortgages. The courts quickly responded. To lot after lot, property after property, he took full title. The anguish of families, the sorrow and suffering of the community, the blank despair and ruination, which drove many to beggary and prostitution, others to suicide, all had no effect upon him than to make him more eagerly energetic in availing himself of the misfortunes and the tragedies of others. Now the observable, the op, now was observable the operation of the centripetal principle which applied to every recurring panic, namely that panics are but the easy means by which the very rich are enabled to get possession of more and more of the general produce and property. The ranks of petty landowners were much thinned out by the panic of 1837, and the number of independent businessmen was greatly reduced. A considerable part of both classes were forced down into the army of wage workers. Within a few years after the Panic of 1837, this subsection, by the way, is called Astor's Wealth Multiplies. Astor's Wealth multiplied to an enormous extent. Business revived, values increased. It was now that immigration began to pour in heavily. In 1843, 60,000 immigrants entered the Port of New York. Four years later, the number was 129000 a year. Soon it rose to 300000 a year, and from that time on, kept on ever increasing. A large portion of these immigrants remained in New York City. Land was in demand as never before. Fast and faster, the city grew. Vacant lots of a few years before became congested with packed humanity. Landlordism and slums flourished side by side. The one is a development of the other. The outlying farm, rocky, and swamplands of the New York City of 1812 with its 100,000 population, became the thickly settled metropolis of 1840 with 317,712 inhabitants and the well-nigh-half-million population of 1850. Hard as the laborer might work, he was generally impoverished for the reason that successively rents were raised and he had to yield up more and more of his labor for the simple privilege of occupying an ugly and cramped habitation. Once having fastened his hold upon the land, Astor never sold it. From the first, he adopted the plan, since religiously followed, for the most part by his descendants, of leasing the land for a given number of years, usually 21. Large tracts of land in the heart of the city he let lie unimproved for years, while the city fast grew up all around them and enormously increased their value. He often refused to build, although there was intense pressure for land and buildings, His policy was to wait until the time when those whom necessity drove to use his land should come to him as supplicants and accept his own terms. For a considerable considerable time, no one cared to take his land on lease at his onerous terms. But finally, such was the growth of population and business that his land was indispensable and it was taken on leaseholds. Astor's exactions for leaseholds were extraordinarily burdensome, but he would make no concessions. The lessee was required to erect his dwelling or business place at his own expense, and during the period of the 21 years of the lease, he not only had to pay rent in the form of giving over to Astor 5 or 6% of the value of the land, but was responsible for all taxes, repairs, and other charges. When the ground lease expired, the buildings became Astor's absolute property. The middleman landlord, speculative lessee, or trading tenant who leased Astor's land and put up tenements or buildings necessarily had to recoup himself for the high tribute that he had to pay to Astor. He did this either by charging the worker exorbitant rents or demanding excessive profits for his wares, in both of which cases the producers had finally to foot the bill. So I could go on and on. This book is amazingly good. Um, I'll give you a quick rundown. Of some of the chapters. I recommend that you um, look this up on the internet, and, and I'm sure you can find it in the Google Books History of the Great American Fortunes. Um, chapter one The Great Proprietary Estates, um, Introductions of Black Slaves, The Dutch West India Company, um, Old World Traders Become Feudal Lords. Chapter two The Sway, The Colonies Carved into Great Estates. Um, the rising of the trading class in Chapter 3. Chapter 4, the shipping fortunes. Chapter 5, the shippers and their times. Chapter 6, Gerard, the richest of the shippers. Then the great land fortunes. Uh, that's where we were with Astor. Uh, Astor um, Aster fortune uh, is, covers four whole chapters of that section. Uh, oh, the Vanderbilt fortune comes up later. Uh, railroads, trust, banks. The one I remember really good in this book, and I'm going to reread it, and I'll probably share some of that with you at some point. Uh, I've got to find it in these. uh, This actually, this this table of contents is about 20 pages long. It's got all kinds of detail in each one. Oh yeah, Um, Harriman. uh, Let me see. I'm looking for the chapter about the uh, the four uh, Californians. I I got a, a you know Stanford. All those guys. Anyway, there's a whole chapter of those, and it's, uh, it's real interesting. So anyway, so I thought I'd share that with you today also. So, you know, I don't want to be negative, but when you look around and you see that uh, something like the .1 uh, richest people in the country own more than half of the assets, uh, the other interesting fact I saw was that the 16 wealthiest families in the world own more than the bottom 50% of the entire world is worth. So it's just kind of interesting how uh, business, uh, you know, we talk about business these days. Uh, This show does talk to local business people quite a bit. Uh, It's hard to make a living, pay all your taxes, to stay up with all the crazy uh, regulations. You know, it's not easy these days. So you really need to... uh, it's almost like you have to work harder these days to kind of make ends meet. Uh, the other thing to remember is on the, as far as the tax rates go, when they first started the income tax back in 1913, it didn't even start until you had income of something like $3,000, of which, like I was saying, is now that's the equivalent of about $100,000 now. So when the income tax first started, I believe the top rate, the rates went from like 1% to 5%. And and like I say, you wouldn't pay any, you'd pay zero income tax if your income was the equivalent of like 90 to 100,000 now. So when it started, it was very innocuous. It didn't bother a lot of people. But, you know, when you really think about it now, the way inflation has picked up, the income tax rates that they design like that, now you have families that are, not well off, not making large income by any real standard, but they're up in the 15 percent federal bracket. Uh, you can reach the 25 percent bracket if you make, oh, $90,000 or 100000 as a family. But, you know, when you think about it, even with that kind of income, uh, if you have a couple of children, uh, it's not that easy to really get ahead. So the whole system is sort of based on this idea of inflation and it's just very difficult these days to be a self-employed businessman able to make a lot of money after you pay all your taxes. So uh, that's just part of the, the purpose of my show here on Tuesday and Thursday is I want to educate everybody so that it can help them with their business. And um, I like to point out these things like from this old book because nobody talks about these kinds of things. They don't talk about uh, how these fortunes were amassed at, on the backs of a lot of working people all those hundreds of years ago and that doesn't even mention the the slave ownership which uh, lasted legally until the 1860s this is just uh, it's almost like slavery when uh, laborers are forced to pay high rents to uh, super wealthy landlords and um, you know back then there was no labor laws or anything and in fact uh, a lot of them a lot of the whole idea of the factory growth was based on Uh, women and children working the factories which is a whole nother issue so hey nice to see you we're gonna have a real good uh, exciting local businessman guest uh, next week on Tuesday Uh, business buzz is Monday through Friday at three o'clock tune in next time we'll see you soon Harold Littlejohn signing off
1: Chico Mobile AC Radiator and Auto Repair says, This coming fall season, please remember to drive with the three C's of safety. Caution, courtesy, and common sense. Please practice safe and sober driving at all times. Don't be responsible for an accident. This message is compliments of Bob at Chico Mobile AC Radiator and Auto Repair. They're specialists in auto electric system problems, including repairs and installation of alternators, generators, starters, electric windows, and locks. Chico Mobile AC Radiator and Auto Repair at 151 East Park Avenue, is the place to rely on. Hello and welcome to our show. I'm Scott Aldrich. I'm Ventaney. I'm Trisha Coder, and I'm Matt Four. This is Jessica Wilkerson, one of your hosts of Chico Now. A half hour designed for the community and brought to you by the community. Each day, one of our hosts will join with people from organizations throughout the greater Chico area. We want to let you know what's happening in Chico now. So join us at 12:30, Monday through Friday, here on KKXX for Chico Now.
0: It's just my life. So- KKXX, Paradise, K280GL, Chico, and K283AR, Chico, Yuba City, Marysville.
1: Transmatic in Chico salutes our emergency first responders, law enforcement, firemen, and paramedics for their professionalism, commitment, and bravery. They are willing to put their lives on the line for us, with little or no thanks. So let's all take the time to thank our first responders for all they do for us. This message is from Transmatic at 2140 Fair Street in Chico. Caring and servicing the community for over 50 years.